Well, way back in John chapter 1, when we started studying through, uh, Jesus was in the process of calling his disciples. And you remember, he called Nathaniel, Nathaniel, or called Philip rather, and, and Philip went to go find Nathaniel. And he said to Nathaniel, hey, you need to, to, to come with me because there's this guy and we think he might be the Messiah. And you remember what Nathaniel said back is he said to him, can anything good, what, come out of Nazareth? And what did Philip say back? Well, of course it can. Let me, let me give you a theological diatribe on why Nazareth is the perfect place for the Messiah to come from. Did he, did he say, well, well, let's go back and read the Old Testament prophets and try to find where the branch man from the branch town in Nazareth comes from, and, and, and I'll prove it to you from the Old Testament. No, what did Philip say? He said, come and come and see. Come and witness for yourself. Come and find out for yourself. You've got questions. We've got answers. Just, just come and see who this guy is. Watch what he does. Listen to him speak. Become a witness of Jesus, and you will find that he is who I'm telling you he is, that we're not crazy, that this truly is the Messiah. Man, that's what we're going to find that Jesus appeals to in our passage tonight. Yes, it's on the heels of the Good Shepherd passage. Yes, he refers to that again. Yes, it mentions eternal security. But what's interesting is over and over and over again in this text, in John chapter 10, verses 22 through 42, Jesus goes back to one common theme, and that is his works. He goes back to what he's been doing. And he goes back and says, if, if you don't believe me, believe my works. The Jews say, hey, can you just tell us, are you the Messiah? And he says, well, well, look at what I've been doing. Isn't it evident? Isn't it plain? And then at the end of our passage, you're going to see that, that there are many who come to believe in him because of his works and believe in even John's testimony, John the Baptist's testimony, because they've seen his works and they've seen his life. So this is really about works. And you might think, well, that seems odd. We don't often like to talk, have sermons about works. That seems like that's anti-gospel, but these aren't about our works. This is about Jesus' works. This is about what he did for us and why it's so significant for us. So grab your Bibles, turn to John chapter 10, and we will pick up in verse 22. It says in verse 22, in, at that time, the feast of dedication took place at Jerusalem. It was winter and Jesus was walking in the temple in the colonnade of Solomon. Right off the bat, we have a reference to the Feast of Dedication, which uh, took place around November or December, according to our calendar at least, and it lasted about eight days. Can anybody think of a, a feast, a Jewish feast that happens during the time of December that lasts around eight days? Hanukkah. Yeah, that's what we're talking about here, okay? So this was not one of the Old Testament sanctioned feasts that we find, like the Feast of Tabernacles or Booths or uh, the, the Feast of Passover or anything else. This was looking back to uh, the time in the intertestamental period when uh, Antiochus Epiphanes in 167 BC defiled the temple there in Jerusalem by setting up an altar to a pagan god. And then after that, there was this war that broke out, a Jewish revolt that broke out, led by a guy named Maccabeus, Judas Maccabeus. So if you've ever heard of the books of Maccabees, first and second Maccabees, they come from this guy's name, Judas Maccabeus. And in 164, he led the revolt against 
uh, the, the forces there against Epiphanes and his, for, his forces and was finally successful in running them out of Jerusalem and restoring and rededicating their, the, the temple. And that took place on the 25th of Kislev, which is around, again, that time of November, December. And it came to be known as a, a feast of, of lights. And so there was a, a lot of light celebrated with this feast and, and used in this feast. And then just in general, there was this idea of the celebration of the deliverance of God's people, that he had protected them, that he had delivered them, that he had overthrown the enemies, and that, uh, that he had restored them to their place of worship. And so that's the context in which we find Jesus in John chapter 10. In verse 23, it says, well, end of verse 22, it was winter. And so in verse 23, Jesus was walking in the temple, not in the temple building itself, but on the temple mount there. It says, in the colonnade of Solomon. This would have been an, an area that was covered over. And so the, there's a chance that he was walking in this colonnade just because it was cold out there. When we went in 2019 around uh, springtime, around, actually around, right around this time, uh, we were in Jerusalem with the church and it was 39 degrees on the Temple Mount. So it can get cold there. And so it's possible that Jesus is walking in the, the, the colonnade here simply because it's cold and he's not outside in, in the open courts like he might normally be. But the other reason is, this is where the scribes and the Pharisees met with their pupils and taught them. This is also the location where the early church would gather shortly after his ascension and meet together in the, the initial days of the, the church there. And so Jesus is here and he's walking among the colonnade. Look at verse 23. 24 rather. So the Jews, remember in John's gospel, anytime we read the word the Jews, it's not Jews in a favorable sense. It's the Jewish leaders. It's the scribes and Pharisees. It's the one usually opposed to Jesus. So it says in verse 24, so the Jews gathered around him and said to him, how long will you keep us in suspense? If you are the Christ, tell us plainly. It seems like an innocent question, doesn't it? it seems like a decent question, right? If we think back to John chapter four, you've got the woman at the well and Jesus interacts with her and then she kind of begs the question a little bit, not as boldly and as plainly as these leaders, but she says to him, sir, when the Messiah shows up, he's gonna tell us all these things. And Jesus looked back at her, right? And said to her, what? I who am speaking to you am, am he. So he told her, he told this Samaritan woman who his identity is. Well, here you have the Jews, you have the, the scribes and the Pharisees, and it's on the Temple Mount, and they're right there in the middle of, of Solomon's colonnade, where there would have been others gathered together and packed in around Jesus, and people were, and here's the question, are you the Christ? Tell us plainly. And you would think, man, this is great. This is teed up. Here it comes. Jesus can just declare who he is, and then we can move on. And, and he can amass his followers and, and, and confront the Pharisees, and the Jews, and, and we can move forward, and, and Jesus can do his thing. But that's not exactly what was going on. See, this was not a question out of innocent curiosity. This was a question posed by the Jews in order to trap Jesus, in order to, to get him to say something that they could then drive the final nail into his coffin, quite literally. And so they could find a, a reason to bring charges against him and see him put out of their way and out of their midst. And so in John chapter 10, verse 25, Jesus answers them. He says, I, I've told you this, and you do not believe. Here's our first reference to works. The works that I do in my Father's name, those bear witness about me. Jesus doesn't fall for their trap. In fact, he doesn't ever plainly in John's gospel announce that he is the Christ publicly. 
I referenced the woman at the well. He does tell her and he tells a few others. But as far as out in the open, in John's gospel, Jesus doesn't ever say, yes, I am the Christ. I am the Messiah. But he says, I told you. Well, when did he tell us? Well, you remember back in John chapter 5, how plainly Jesus there spoke about his relationship with the Father. How plainly Jesus made it abundantly clear to anyone listening that he and the Father were not uh, subordinates, but they were actually equal. How Jesus made these outlandish and these bold claims, like in John 5, 36, the testimony that I have is greater than that of John, John the Baptist. For the works that the Father has given me to accomplish, the very works that I am doing, those bear witness about me that the Father has sent me. And so Jesus is telling this group of Jewish leaders here, look, I've, I've made this plain. You're asking me, am I the Christ? You know the answer to that. You know what I'm going to tell you because I've already told you. And in fact, not only have I told you, but he says, the works that I do in my Father's name, those bear witness about me. The things they had witnessed, the things they had heard about, the things that caused some of his followers to be in awe and to leave everything and, and follow after him, those works that he had been doing, as you referenced even in John chapter 5, verse 36, again, the works the Father had given him, those were enough testimony to confirm who Jesus truly was. Verse 26, but you do not believe because you are not among my sheep. That's the problem here, right? Jesus could have looked at them bold-faced in the eye and said, yes, I'm the Christ. Wouldn't have changed anything. He could have had the, the angels from heaven appear and announce, yes, this is the Christ. Wouldn't have changed anything. He could have healed a million people in the blink of an eye, walked on water, calmed a storm all at the same time, and it wouldn't have changed anything. Because these men, their problem was not a problem of intellect or a problem of needing to be convinced. Their problem was a, a, a 2 Corinthians 4 kind of a problem. That is, the God of this world had blinded their eyes to keep them from seeing the truth about Jesus. My sheep, he says in verse 27, by contrast, they're the ones that hear my voice and I know them and they follow me. See, Jesus had been clear about his identity. He had revealed who he is, and yet the Jews had not believed. And the thing that separated them from the disciples who had followed Jesus, though they didn't fully understand everything going on at this point, they were, they were those that had truly believed. The thing that separated them was not a matter of, of work, was not a matter of a miracle being done, was not a matter of, of hearing it plainly from the mouth of Jesus. It was a matter of their eyes being opened by the Father because they had been given to Jesus as part of his sheep. Remember back in John chapter six, Jesus said, all who come to me, I will not lose a single one of them. Because why? Because the Father had given them to him. See, everyone had seen the same works from Jesus, but not everyone had believed in him. So yes, there's undoubtedly a measure of God's sovereignty in view here as to why these Jews couldn't or wouldn't see what Jesus had already made plain to them. And there's a limit to the effect of miracles to produce faith, which is why if you have a loved one or you have a coworker or you have a neighbor and you think to yourself, man, God, if you would just do a miracle in front of them, then they would believe. Man, the, the cold hard reality is no, they wouldn't. Because what they need is they need the faith to believe. They need God to open their eyes to believe. 
They've got the the attestation to all the miracle evidence that they could possibly need, including the greatest, which is the empty tomb. And yet they still don't believe, right? But for those of us with eyes to see, I want us to take a moment tonight to see the significance of what Jesus had been doing. Point number one is this, understand the significance of Jesus' works. Understand the significance of Jesus' works. We rightly emphasize the death and resurrection of Jesus. That is the pinnacle of his earthly ministry. That is the crux of our hope as believers and followers of Jesus. But I fear that sometimes the rest of the story gets lost and uh, discredited as to its true impact and significance. Jesus is saying the works that he had done communicate something, reveal something about him. That his works are significant. They weren't just time fillers because Jesus was bored waiting for the Jews to come and find him and nail him to a cross. It wasn't Jesus just doing Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John a favor by giving them some great fodder to write some cool stories in the Gospels. No, what Jesus was doing was communicating something about his identity. Something about his identity as the Messiah, as the Son of God, as who we all have come to believe and trust that he is. In Luke's gospel, Luke chapter 4, verses 16 through 21, we read this. And he, Jesus, came to Nazareth, where he had been brought up. And as was his custom, he went into the synagogue on the Sabbath day, and he stood up to read. And the scroll of the prophet Isaiah was given to him. He, Jesus, unrolled the scroll and found the place where it was written. Notice his intentionality here. He found the place where it was written, and here it is. The Spirit of the Lord is upon me. Because he has anointed me to proclaim good news to the poor. He has sent me to proclaim liberty to the captives, recovering of sight to the blind, and to set at liberty those who are oppressed, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. And he rolled up the scroll and gave it back to the attendant and sat down. And the eyes of all in the synagogue were fixed on him. And he began to say to them, Today this scripture has been fulfilled in your hearing. See, in Isaiah, the the prophet, he was foretelling that there would be a Messiah who would come who would do all of these things. Preach good news to the poor, open the eyes of the blind, give hearing to the deaf. Jesus reads that and says, today it's fulfilled. I'm here, watch me. Pay attention to what I'm I'm doing here. In fact, speaking of that, later on in Luke's gospel, Luke chapter seven, John the Baptist has been imprisoned at this point. It says in verse 18, the disciples of John reported all these things to him. So they go to John and they tell him all that Jesus has been doing. And John, calling two of his disciples to him, sent them to the Lord saying, are you the one who is to come or shall we look for another? And when the men had come to him, they said, John the Baptist has sent us to you saying, are you the one who is to come or shall we look for another? In that hour, he healed many people of diseases. Notice his action, he's doing healed many people of diseases and plagues and evil spirits. And on many who were blind, he bestowed sight. And then look at verse 22. Then he answered them, go tell John what you have, what? Seen and heard. The blind receive their sight. The lame walk. The lepers are cleansed. The deaf hear. The dead are raised up. The poor have the good news preached to them. And blessed is the one who is not offended by me. So John the Baptist, he's sitting in prison. He's going, What's going on? My cousin's supposed to be the Messiah. Rome's still in power. I'm still in prison. What's going on? 
So he sends some of his disciples to Jesus to say, hey, what gives, cuz? Are you the one? And Jesus sends them back to John with, what, a report about his actions, what he's doing. Messianic works, and he references some of them, right? The blind receive their sight. John chapter 9, you just studied that recently. Jesus heals the blind. Or in Mark chapter 10, verses 46 through 52, he heals blind Bartimaeus. So the blind receive their sight. How about the lame? The lame walk. John chapter 5, he heals the paralytic. Mark, or, sorry, Matthew chapter 21, verse 14, he again heals the blind and the lame who came to him in the temple. And he, it says there, healed them. Lepers are cleansed. Mark chapter 1, verses 40 through 45, Jesus cleanses a leper. Luke chapter 17, verses 11 through 19, if one leper is not impressive, how about 10? Jesus cleanses 10 right there. The deaf hear, Mark chapter 7, verses 31 through 37, Jesus heals a deaf man. The dead are raised up. Mark chapter 5, you've got Jairus' daughter who Jesus raises from the dead, restores life to her. And then of course, coming up in the next couple weeks here, you've got John chapter 11 where, I don't mean to, to spoil this, but there's a guy named Lazarus who dies. Jesus gives him life again. The dead are raised up. How about the poor have good news preached to them? Mark chapter 1, verses 38 and 39. Mark chapter 1 is, is one of my favorite openings to any gospel because it just gets straight into it, which is Mark's style there. And then he's talking about everything that Jesus is doing. And it culminates with Jesus healing an innumerable number of people who gather outside of Peter, Peter's mother-in-law's house there in Capernaum on the, the first day there of his public ministry. And he's up late into the night healing the people. And then he goes to sleep for who knows a couple few hours. And then it says he gets up while he's still dark and he goes off to pray by himself. And the disciples wake up in the morning and they're going, uh-oh, we lost Jesus. Where did he go? So they start looking for him and finally they find him and they say, hey, master, everybody's looking for you back in Capernaum. Let's go back there and keep doing what you're doing. Let's go back and keep healing people. But Jesus looks at them and tells them, no, let's, let's go to the next towns. Why? That I may preach there also, for that is why I came out. And he went throughout all Galilee, preaching in their synagogues and casting out demons. Yeah, Jesus was about the business of preaching the good news to the poor materially poor, yeah, but more importantly, spiritually poor. They've got good news preached to them. Again, there's significance to what Jesus does in these things, right? And maybe when we hear a, a sermon on one of these miracles, we're reminded about the power and the wonder of it. But I, I fear that most of the time in our DBR, we're so familiar that it just becomes another part of the, the story of Jesus before we get to the cross and the empty tomb. And it loses its significance. Y'all, Jesus was asked by the Jews, are you the Christ? Tell us plainly, are you the Christ? And he could have given them the, the greatest theological lecture on his identity of the, as the Messiah that anyone has ever known. But instead, what did he do? He said, I, I've been doing the works. I've been doing the works. And you do not believe because you're not of my sheep. But the evidence is there. 
when John sent messengers to him saying, are, are you the one? He didn't go back to John with them quoting Isaiah 53 or go back to John saying, hey, it's, it's necessary for the, the Messiah to suffer before he enters into his glory the way that he finally gets to the, the two on the road to Emmaus in Luke 24. No, what does he do? He sends them back to John and says, here's what he's doing. And what he's doing bears witness to his identity as the Messiah. Jesus answered them, verse 25, I told you and you do not believe. The works that I do in my Father's name bear witness about me. Mark chapter four contains probably my favorite of all of Jesus's miracles and it's the, the calming of the storm. You remember the story, right? Jesus is, is with his disciples on the Sea of Galilee and he's what? He's doing what while the storm comes up? He's asleep. And this is a, a storm that would make the, the most ardent sailor, because that's what these disciples were, afraid. They were used to being out on the water, and yet this storm has them terrified. And water is, is coming into the boat, and they feel like they're, they're dead. They're going to drown. And so they go and they wake up Jesus. Master, master, we're going to drown. Don't you care? Don't you care? Do something. And Jesus does. He gets up, and he rebukes the storm. And it's immediately still, Right? Just a phenomenal miracle. And then he turns and he rebukes the lack of faith in the disciples. He says, don't you have faith? Do you remember the disciples' reaction in response? It says they were terrified and they began to ask themselves, who is this that even the wind and the waves obey him? You see, they were asking the right question based on what they were witnessing. They were seeing Jesus do the things that he was doing and saying, there's something different about this one. Who is this? Jesus had also made the, the verbal claims about it. Man, this is not just his works. John 5, 17, Jesus said, my father is working until now and I am working. He was putting himself on par with the father, saying the father never rests on the Sabbath because he has to keep the universe in motion. It says, because the Father is always working, I am always working. John 5, 21. For as the Father raises the dead and gives them life, so also the Son gives life to whom he will. That the Son has the same life-giving power in him that the Father has. John 6, 29. This is the work of God, that you believe in him whom he has sent. You want to please God? Believe me, is what he's saying there. John 6, 35. I am the bread of life. Whoever comes to me shall not hunger, and whoever believes in me shall never thirst. John 6, 40. For this is the will of my Father, that everyone who looks on the Son and believes in him should have eternal life, and I will raise him up on the last day. These are outlandish claims that are just as plain as any of the works that he's ever done. And so it's, it's a both and. I just want us to, to, to realize that the works are not just to entertain us, they're also to, to confirm something about who he is and to communicate something about who he is. So, man, let me just encourage you. And, and we're, it's a perfect time because we're still in, in uh, Luke's gospel in our DBR. And then we've got John still in front of us. You guys are going to know John backwards and forwards by the time we get through it with the DBR, aren't you? 
But just let me encourage you to, to pay closer attention as you're spending time in the DBR to the, these works, these signs, these miracles that Jesus is doing. In fact, that's a, a word that is used of them, the signs. A sign is something that points to something else, right? It's communicating something. And so as you come across the, the works of Jesus, I want you to spend some time just pondering, considering what is being communicated about Jesus with what is being done by Jesus in this instance. Maybe if you like to write in your Bible, make a note in your margin or, or make a note in your, your Logos program about what this is communicating about Jesus' identity. Jesus was intentional about everything that he had done. Everything. There was nothing that he did that wasn't communicating something about who he is. And that's why these writers recorded the signs in the miracles in the gospel for us. Well, I alluded to it earlier, but the greatest of Jesus' works is what? Yeah, it's the, the cross and the empty tomb. It's, it's what we know as the crux, as the heartbeat, as the central content of the gospel. That Jesus died on the cross for our sins and that he rose from the dead three days later, right? It's that we can have forgiveness in him if we will repent from our sins and put our faith in Jesus' death on the cross for us. Is that we can have hope that we will live eternally with Christ because he is risen from the dead and death no longer has a hold on him. It's what led Paul to write in Romans chapter 6 that if we've been united to his death, we will also be united surely to his resurrection, right? So that's the greatest of his works. But in John 10, had that taken place yet? Nope. Nope. And yet, look at verse 28 and 29 because he alludes to those works without directly alluding to those works. Look at what he says there. He says, I give them eternal life and they will never perish. He's talking, remember, in this context about his sheep, the ones that see the works and believe. I give them eternal life and they will never perish and no one will snatch them out of my hand. My father who has given them to me is greater than all and no one is able to snatch them out of the father's hand. John six thirty nine. Jesus said, this is the will of him who sent me that I should lose nothing of all that he has given me but raise it up on the last day. Romans 8, 38 through 39, Paul says this, for I am sure that neither death nor life, nor angels, nor rulers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor powers, nor height, nor depth, nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. Colossians 3.3, for you have died and your life is hidden with Christ in God. The reason I say that Jesus is alluding to the cross here is because the cross is what's necessary if this is true. If we're going to be saved, if our life is going to be hidden with Christ in God, if, if we are never going to be separated from the love of God in Christ Jesus, then the cross has to happen first. We have to be delivered from our sins because we can't have any of that still in our sins, right? Verse 30, I and the Father are one. Well, the Jews didn't like that very much. Verse 31, the Jews picked up stones again to stone him. Jesus says, I and the Father are one, united in action, united in desire, united in intent, in will, united in power. Is this plain enough, you think? Tell us plainly, if you are the Christ, I and the Father are one. They get the message? Yeah, they did. So much so that they begin to pick up stones to stone him. Again. 
See, the message had been received loud and clear, not that they had seen the works and believed the content, but they had heard the words and become enraged. Jesus answered them, I've shown you many, notice again his focus back on what? The works. He says, I've shown you many good works from the Father. For which of them are you going to stone me? And the Jews answered him, it's not for a good work that we're going to stone you, but for blasphemy, because you being a man make yourself out to be God. Jesus said, I have shown you many good works. That word shown, in the, in the Greek, it means to display openly. In other words, Jesus is saying, you want a plain description of who I am? I, I'm, I'm not hiding. I haven't been doing these things under a rock, right? I'm reminded of, of Paul's testimony when he says, look, these things haven't been done in a corner. So Jesus is saying it's, it's happening openly. In fact, it's the word that's used in Matthew 4, 8. During the temptation of Jesus, it says again, the devil took him to a very high mountain and showed him all the kingdoms of the world and their glory. He put it on open display before Jesus so that he could see it plainly and take it all in. It's the same word here. Jesus says, I've, which are the, the works that I've shown you? For which of those are you going to stone me? Which are the good, beautiful, useful, advantageous, helpful? Which are, the, which are the helpful things that I've done for you? Are you going to stone me? Raising the dead, feeding the 5,000, healing the lame, cleansing a leper, letting a blind man have sight, giving a father his daughter back. You want to kill me for that? And they say, it's not for a good work, but it's for blasphemy. See, they were so caught up on his words that they weren't willing to consider the words together with the works. And so they were turning a blind eye. Blasphemy is, is a charge that basically means to, to degrade the father. And that's what they're saying Jesus was doing when he said, I and the father are one, that he was degrading the father. And listen, if he's not who he had been saying he is, then that's true. You and I, we can't say I and the Father are one the way that Jesus said I and the Father are one. But see, Jesus had put on open display for what I, that I've been showing you. Are you going to stone me? Doing things, saying, as the Father has life, so I have life. Jairus' daughter, she's not dead, she's just sleeping. Everybody laughs at him. He goes upstairs and brings her back down alive. They understood Jesus. They just didn't believe him because they wouldn't consider the entirety of the package of what he had been doing and saying. Again, why? Well, Jesus could have done more miracles if that's what they really needed at this point. But their problem wasn't that they needed more miracles. The problem was they needed the miracle of faith. They needed the blinders to be removed from their eyes. He's going to return to the works in just a minute, but he pulls the thread a little bit on their obsession with his words Look at verse 34. Jesus answered them, Is it not written in your law, I said you are gods? If he called them gods, lowercase g, to whom the word of God came and scripture cannot be broken, do you say of him whom the Father consecrated and sent into the world, you are blaspheming because I said I am the Son of God? So Jesus kind of humors them for a minute. And he quotes from Psalm 82.6 where the Jewish scriptures reference another other than Yahweh as God. And so Jesus poses this question. He says, the, 
the chapter says in, in Psalm 82, 6, I said, you are God's sons of the most high, all of you. So Jesus is alluding to that, a, a passage that they would have well known and saying, you know this passage where, where David refers to God's, lowercase g. And you're all up in arms and calling me a blasphemer because I said I'm the son of God. I didn't even claim that I am God boldly and directly and plainly. And so he's engaging with them, but he's pointing out the futility of their protest against him, that he's not blasphemous as they're charging him with being blasphemous. Especially why? Because this is the one whom God consecrated and sent into the world. This is most likely an allusion back to Jesus' baptism. When the, the spirit descends like a dove and he hears the voice from heaven, behold, this is my son with whom I am well pleased. And Jesus is commissioned at that point on and, and driven into the, the wilderness for his temptation. Y'all, it's not that his words weren't worthy of attention, but Jesus keeps going back to the works to exhort and implore the Jews to consider the full picture. Verse 37, he goes back there. He says this, if I am not doing the works of my father, then do not believe me. But if I do them, Notice, even though you do not believe me, believe the what? Believe the works that you may know and understand that the Father is in me and I am in the Father. You see the significance of Jesus' works here? He says, you don't believe my words, believe my works. Look at my life and you will see that what I'm saying is true. That I am in the Father and the Father is in me. Matthew 11, again, different account, but John the Baptist, uh, to, to remind us here, again, sends his disciples. And Jesus says, go tell John what you hear and see. The blind receive their sight, the lame walk, the lepers are cleansed, the deaf hear, the dead are raised up, and the poor have good news preached to them. We walked through that list. It's up there still on the screen. And Jesus is saying, look at those works and realize what they say about me. It goes back to Isaiah chapter 61, 1 and 2. The spirit of the Lord God is upon me because the Lord has anointed me to bring good news to the poor, sent me to bind up the brokenhearted, to proclaim liberty to the captives and the opening of prison to those who are bound, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor and the day of vengeance of our God and to comfort all who mourn. Isaiah 35, 5 through 6. Then the eyes of the blind shall be opened, the ears of the deaf unstopped. Then shall the lame man leap like a deer and the tongue of the mute sing for joy. Men, the Pharisees knew those passages. The Jews knew those passages and knew that they were uh, dripping with messianic expectation. And Jesus is saying, hello? Look at what I've been doing. You don't want to believe my words? Look at my life. Roll it back. Watch it over again. Talk to the people that were there and there were eyewitnesses. Pay attention to what's going and going on here and see if you can piece together one plus one plus one plus one and, and figure out that it equals I am the Christ, which is the question you asked me at the beginning of all this. If you're the Christ, tell us plainly. Verse 39, and they sought to arrest him, but he escaped from their hands. Why? Because it wasn't his time yet. They had picked up stones, then they sought to arrest him, and he escapes from their hands. Jesus is divisive. I think any of us that have brought up the name Jesus at the, the Thanksgiving table can attest to that, yes? He's divisive. But I think we often think more about the teachings of Jesus perhaps as divisive, uh, more so than, than the, the works of Jesus as divisive. 
But here for those initial eyewitnesses of his life and ministry, it was his works that were at the heart of the division. The Jews would not see and believe what he had done. For some like John the Baptist, the works were enough to confirm what they believed about the words that he had spoken, that yes, this is the Messiah, and here's the backup, here's the evidence. We see it and we believe, right? John's faith was buoyed by the, the works that he had seen Jesus done, but then there were others who refused to believe Jesus, and for them, those works that Jesus had done were just further condemnation upon them because they rejected not only his words, but also his works. And that's what Jesus works as they're recorded in the gospel. Men, as, as we read through the gospels, as we read through what Jesus does, as we read through what Jesus says, as we read through as how Jesus interacts with people, it can either strengthen our faith or it can heap further condemnation on us if we are not in Christ, if we continually reject and hold out against the Lord. But I pray it'll be the first one for you. Point number two tonight is this. Strengthen your faith by Jesus' works. Strengthen your faith. Let your faith be encouraged as you consider what Jesus had done, Right? Just like John had his doubts. Sometimes, men, we have our doubts, don't we? Is this really going to happen? What, what's, what do we need to, to do? I mean, Peter anticipates this, right? He says, go tell the people that are wondering where Jesus is that a day with him is like 10,000 here. He's not slow to fulfill his promise. He'll come back. Look at verse 37 and 38 again in our passage. If I am not doing the works of the Father, do not believe me. But if I do them, even though you don't believe me, believe the works. Man, there are plenty of evidences that lend credibility to this book. More so than we have time to go through right now together. But you can trust the eyewitness accounts of what takes place and what's written in this book. Just as a small anecdote of that, John, who's our author here, he would ultimately be exiled and die in exile, okay? Die an old man in exile on the island of Patmos. And you think, well, an island exile, that's pretty good. Don't think Hawaii, okay? This is not a, a fun island to be on. So John would die for his faith on an island of Patmos. Judas, of course, killed himself. The other 10 original followers of Jesus were executed for professing what we're reading in these gospels, okay? And you might think, well, yeah, but what about the suicide bombers today? Okay, it's one thing to die for something somebody else has convinced you to be true third party. It's another thing to die for something that you're professing to be an eyewitness of. At some point, survival instinct's gonna kick in, you're gonna go, okay, you know what? It's, it's not true, right? As they're sawing through the, the tree trunk to saw one of them in half, and those blades get closer and closer, at some point he's tapping out and going, no, this is not true. As Peter's being crucified upside down, at some point the guy that denied Jesus three times is gonna deny him again. But they don't, why? Because we can trust what's written in this book. And so when he says, believe the works, man, you can believe the works. You can have your faith encouraged by this. It's baseball season and baseball's back, praise God, right? And it's spring training and hope is high for every team out there, almost every team out there. Even for me as a Rangers fan, right? We, we took Corey Seager from you Dodgers fans. Super thankful and grateful for that. And I know you got Trey Turner and you bought everybody else on the face of the planet, but whatever. I'm gonna rejoice in Corey Seager and, and Simeon up the middle of that infield. I'm excited about that. But that's just it, right? Baseball season is right around the corner. And, and in spring training, we get that chance to see with our eyes all of the players that our team signed in the offseason. And the, the excitement that we had during the off season, 
Now we get to see their works and that excitement that we had about the potential is only ratcheted up in most instances, right? How much more should our faith in Jesus be ratcheted up when we read about and see what he does in the pages of the Gospels? I mean, if if Jesus calmed the storm, fed the 5,000 and then the 4,000, if he cast out demons and healed the lepers, if he raised the dead, what does that mean for his ability to keep us the way that earlier in our passage he promised he would keep us? To attest to his power that he is who he says he is and will do what he said he will do. If Jesus calmed the storm, men, do you think he can handle the climate situation in our world right now? If Jesus fed the 5,000, can he provide for your family? If Jesus healed the lepers, can he protect your health? If Jesus raised the dead, can he raise you as well? The answer is yes. See, man, those first three, the, the climate, the fam- that's ridiculous, but whatever, your, your family and your health. Yeah, he can provide for your family. Maybe he won't. I mean, God's will is, is unique in that, right? He can protect your health, but maybe he won't. But that last one, raising the dead, and, and, and particularly the fact that Jesus himself walked out of his own grave never to enter again. That one's a certainty. And that's what he's talked about up here. Look, I'm, I'm not going to lose you. If you're one of my sheep, I, I've, I've got you. And I'm going to raise you up on the last day. Because there's a work that's coming that you don't know about yet. That's the key to all of that. And it's going to involve a cross and an empty tomb. That again leads Paul to say, and if we've been united to his death, we will surely, surely, certainly, without a doubt, without question, be united to his resurrection. As we see the works of Christ, our faith can be encouraged, can be buoyed. They will never perish. No one will snatch them out of my hand. My Father who has given them to me is greater than all. No one is able to snatch them out of the Father's hand. I and the Father are one. Strengthen your faith by Jesus' works. He escapes because they want to arrest him. And we say, well, how did he do that? Because he's Jesus. What did that look like? I don't know exactly what it looked like. We don't have it fully recorded, but it's like when they want, wanted to shove him off the Mount, of, Mount Precipice there um, outside the region of, region of Nazareth, and he passed through their midst and went on the way, right? Jesus is able to do things that, that preserve his life and, and, and are also miraculous. Why? Because it wasn't his time yet. Well, he leaves, and he leaves with his disciples, and they went away again across the Jordan. So now they're on the eastern side of the Jordan to the place where John had been baptizing at first, and there he remained. Verse 41, and many came to him and said, John did no sign, but everything John said about this man was true, and many believed in him true. There. Many believed in him there. So Jesus retreats in the face of this hostility because, again, why? It wasn't his time. It's not that he was afraid. It's not that he was weak. It just wasn't the time that God had ordained for his ultimate confrontation. 
But he goes there and he, he goes to the backyard of John's early ministry. And it seems there that some people are starting to get what he's been saying this whole time. See, he's had the negative interaction with the Jews where they're not believing the works. And now he comes here to the other side of the Jordan and he finds himself there. And it says that many were there who began to consider his works, consider his life, consider all that he had taught, all that he had done, all the miracles that he had performed. And they start to think to themselves, you know what, that John the Baptist guy, he was onto something about this guy. And it says, and many believed in him there. Man, John had borne witness of who Jesus was and what he would do. We've been given the same charge to go and to bear witness and to tell the world about who Jesus was and what he has done. In fact, this is the central message of our evangelistic commission. It's this, works save, just not our works. The works of Jesus done for us, his righteousness saves. That's the message of our proclamation of the good news of the gospel. Point number three tonight is be ambassadors for Jesus' words and works. Just like John the Baptist had been, and the people looked and they said, hey, there's something to this. It's true, right? Maybe you remember back when LeBron James used to be good at basketball, um, back in Cleveland, there was this gigantic mural that was on the side of a building that said what? It said, we are all, none of you are basketball fans. I was gonna put this photo up there and you just confirmed that on Friday morning, I'm gonna put the photo up there. We are all witnesses is what it said. And it was a Nike ad. And I, it didn't strike me until today. And I, I don't know if this was intentional, but it had LeBron James with his arms outstretched and his hand up, head up on the mural. And I always thought, well, that was just him throwing the dust in the air like he used to do before the game. But it struck me differently today as I, I looked at that. I don't know if it was intentional. But their message with that mural was clear, man. What we're seeing LeBron do on the basketball court has never been done before. We are all witnesses of his greatness. And I can tell you that for those of us in Christ, we are witnesses of someone far greater than LeBron James who also stretched out his arms for us and looked up to heaven. But I wonder over the last decade, who's been talked about more at the water coolers? Who's been talked about more in the front yards of our neighborhoods? Who's been talked about more in the checkout line at the grocery store? Or in the bleachers at our youth baseball games? or around the dinner table as our families sit down to eat? Whose works have gotten more press, LeBron's or Jesus? Man, do we realize that we know far more about Jesus than John the Baptist did at the height of his ministry? I mean, that's part of the point of Hebrews chapter 11. Right, the author goes through the hall of faith and talks about all these amazing people and all of the, these amazing Old Testament saints. And then he says, what? But, but we have something better than that. And says, and in fact, apart from us, they would not be made perfect. In what sense do we have something better? Because we've got the full picture of who Jesus is and what he's done. John said, behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world, not fully understanding what he was saying. Man, we understand what that means because we have the full witness of Jesus Christ entrusted to us. We know the full story. We can bear witness to all of the works of Jesus, including the greatest work, which is the cross and the empty tomb. 
We can be ambassadors for Christ. The question is, are we? Again, John the Baptist sent his disciples to Jesus and they come to Jesus and said, hey, John's got a question and Jesus then does these miracles and performs all these things. And then he tells them, he says, go and tell John what you have seen. Man, if I can tonight quote Jesus, go and tell your neighbors what you've seen. Go and tell your coworkers what you've seen. Go and tell your wives what you've seen. Go and tell your kids what you've seen. Go and tell, yes, your, your barista who makes your coffee every morning what you've seen. Go and tell them what you've heard and seen. We are ambassadors for Jesus' words and works. Man, that should be our message. We've got Easter coming up. Low-hanging fruit. People expect Christians to talk about Jesus at Easter. Yes, even still today, they still do. We've got the extravaganza coming up on the Saturday after Good Friday before Easter Sunday, Resurrection Sunday. Can I encourage you men to be there? And you might say, well, I don't have kids or grandkids that are going to be there. That's okay. There's going to be a lot of adults there whose kids are running wild picking up Easter eggs and we need people to talk to them about Jesus. There's going to be men there on their phones while their wives are out with their kids picking up Easter eggs and those men need to be engaged. They need to be approached. You need to, to, to be an ambassador for Jesus in those instances to, to walk up next to them and say, hey, my name's so-and-so, what's your name? And start a conversation. Hey, are you guys going to church anywhere tomorrow? Have you ever been to church? Have you ever been to church on an Easter? It's a great Sunday to start. Can I encourage you to be there? Because there are people that are going to be there at that extravaganza. We see hundreds, if, if not thousands, at these events who might not make it another 365 days. The time may be running out and we need to get the message to them. Again, John chapter one. Philip thinks about Nathaniel. So he needs to know about Jesus. And he runs to Nathaniel. Nathaniel, Nathaniel, Nathaniel. Come on, we found the guy. We've got the one. He's the Messiah. The one we've been waiting for. I don't know about that. Nazareth? Come on, Phil. Have you even read the Old Testament? Nazareth? Philip's not deterred by skepticism, by mockery, by opposition. What does he say? Come and see. That's our job. That's our job this season. That's our job for the rest of our lives until Christ kills us or calls us home, right? We need to be ambassadors for Christ. Let's pray. Lord, we are grateful for your work for us and the greatest of those works being the cross and the empty tomb. And we're grateful that you were not just some good teacher whose words were just that, just words, not backed up by anything else. We're grateful that these words were backed up by displays of your power that could only be attributed to the, your identity as the Son of God, your identity as the Christ, your identity as the long-awaited Messiah. And so, Father, help us, if we have not yet responded rightly, respond rightly to these things. I pray for any man in this room tonight who has not yet repented from his sins and put his faith in Jesus, that he would do that tonight 
that tonight would be the night that he believes the works of Jesus, including that greatest work where Jesus took his place on the cross and died for his sins and rose from the dead three days later so that now he can be forgiven. He can become your son tonight where he sits and can have a guarantee that he will live forever with Christ. Lord, help us cut through the minutia. Help us cut through the talk about things that ultimately don't matter in the big picture so that we can get to what we need to be dealing with, which is, have you heard about Jesus? Can I tell you about Jesus? Come and see. Make us your ambassadors. Give us those opportunities this week, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.